Welcome to the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. This is Joe. Hi, hello. My guest today is the author of international bestseller Ghosted, which was published in 35 languages and has sold more than 1.5 million copies. She came into writing after a career in factual television, where she traveled to some of the most remote locations on the earth. Her newest novel, The Love of My Life, was released March 1st from Penguin Random House. It's Rosie Walsh. Hello. Hello and good morning to you. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I sort of, readers or listeners aren't going to be able to tell, but we're coordinated brilliantly color-wise today. We do have a really great color story going on here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm dressing for the weather that I wish was coming, the bright springtime colors. It's actually arrived here actually today. Suddenly it's gone from being absolutely vile and freezing to lovely and warm. I can hear birds tweeting outside. I, I'm sorry, I know you're not quite there yet, but hang on in there. <laughs> I'll hang on tough. We had a sneak peek of it last weekend. It was in the it was in the 70s. It was almost summery warm here, uh, but now we're back into freezing temps and the mm. birds are, are back in hiding. <laughs> mm. So to get us started, Rosie, do you mind telling us a little bit about The Love of My Life? Of course. Uh, so The Love of My Life is the story of Emma and Leo, who... I guess to the outside world seem like the perfect couple. Um, they both have great careers. Emma is a marine biologist and Leo is an obituary writer. They've got a brilliant, funny little girl, Ruby, who's three. Uh, they live in this lovely ramshackle house in a really beautiful, very sought after part of London. Um, but at the beginning of the novel, when we meet Emma, she's waiting to find out if her cancer treatment has worked. And uh, Leo is coping with his feelings the way he knows best, which is to write her obituary in secret. <laughs> yes. Um, this, unfortunately, is, is quite a big mistake uh, because in the course of his sort of basic fact-checking, um, he discovers that Emma, the love of his life, is, um, is not who she says she is. And that even her name, even her name is false. I was lucky to get uh, an advanced reader copy of The Love of My Life and hearing you describe it and and just my once you said the house was ramshackle I was like yep that's that's exactly how you wrote it and I I can picture just the the sprawling hoarder nightmare left behind from her grandmother and I mean honestly the way that you handle scenery at every turn really struck me but also made me smile there were moments where um I, I was just completely transported it is a it is a book that you fall into immediately. Wow, thank you. Um, very kind words. I, I mean, you know, that's not an accident. I spend mm -hmm. hours, days, weeks in immersive research, not just into my character's jobs, although obviously that took most um, of my research time, mm -hmm. but just, you know, like this, the, the house that Emma and Leo live in, it's a sort of, it's a potch of of a few places that I saw in in the place in the part of London where they live and mm -hmm. I, I spent hours and hours wandering around that part of town with a notebook just taking notes not not just about you know what the houses look like but you know just tiny details about you know the, the color of the leaves on the trees and what you can hear and you know just what what adverts there are in phone boxes mm -hmm. even every single detail um has its use has been my experience so I you know I've got hundreds and hundreds of pages worth of notebooks full of you know transcriptions of you know conversations with scientists and all sorts of other people 
Um, but I've got just as many pages full of just, you know, observations as I walk around or even sit still, you know, sometimes I would just sit on the pavement, you know, with my feet in the road, just listening and watching um, and just imagining what it was like day to day to be living in Emma and Leo's house. It, it really translates and it also that that action makes so much sense because I feel like when you describe your characters in motion especially Emma and Leo as we're as we're a little past the kind of revelation moment of course no spoilers here but as they uh, are really getting into the pace as things start to pick up you can feel the motion of your research very present in that I hearing you say that you walked those streets does not surprise me in the slightest because it it has the earnesty of someone who has has lived there or at the very least done some extensive exploring oh my gosh I would wish <laughs> I wish I had lived in Hampstead I generally it's only millionaires apart from Emma and Leo actually if you read the sure. story you, you will discover that they are not your average Hampstead resident <laughs> Not at all. Uh, also, just as a side note, I love the idea of the shed in the backyard that Leo has transformed. <laughs> there were so many moments that I was, as I would take a break to like pick up my tea and then I'd go, should I put a shed in the backyard? I mean, I have a house to myself. Who knows why I'd need a separate space to myself, but it just, it really struck me. Right? Get the, Get shed. the shed. Everyone needs a shed. I'm going to do it. Rosie told me I'm I'm off to build a shed in the backyard. <laughs> We've just moved house and there isn't a shed for me. So I'm getting a shed. The, the, well, there is there's a falling down shed in the vegetable garden. I'm having that. I need a shed. Even, Absolutely. Even, even if I just hide from my children when I can't cope with them anymore, I need a shed. <laughs> Everyone needs a shed. The escape is important. So to continue on with your discussion of research, um, and also obituary writer and marine biologist. When I say that, I feel like I'm setting up one of those terrible jokes, like they walk into a bar. Um, how did you choose those occupations? Um, so the, the whole book started with Leo's occupation as an obituary writer, actually. Um, I was at, at a dinner party and it, it wasn't going well, I have to be honest. It was pretty awkward. There was no chemistry between my partner and I and, you know, the, the sort of two people that we were trying to make friends with. Uh, conversation was quite stilted until um, the guy in this couple started talking about an obituary that he had been writing. And I didn't realise, because I'm not a journalist, that, you know, the vast majority of obituaries are written in advance. And of course, it makes sense if you think about it, because, you know, right. people's obituaries go up online within, you know, an hour of them dying normally. So, of course, there is, you know, there is a pre-written obituary. I hadn't thought about that, but it made me start thinking about, um, you know, how we, how we might want ourselves to be seen after we die. Mm -hmm. And that in turn just made me think, gosh, this must be such a fascinating job. And so I just reached for my phone in the in this restaurant and um, wrote a note in my phone, which was, obituary writer starts researching somebody's life, discovers they're not who they say they are. And that within a few months, maybe a year, because I was still writing Ghosted at the time, mm -hmm. became obituary writer starts researching his wife's life and discovers she's not who she says she is. And so that 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 that's that's how that started, and I was determined to write a book about obituary because it's such a fascinating area. You know, just this whole for me the idea of story and the agency we have over our story, the way we you know the way we like to sort of curate our lives and you know present this curated version of our life, particularly these days with social media, um, and 
you know, an obituary writer's role to sort of sift through all of this, <laughs> all of these stories we want the world to think about ourselves and to actually tell the real story of, of someone's life. So I had to start with an obituary writer. And actually, that was a really brilliant vehicle for me for getting into the idea of, you know, discovering that the person you love most on earth is basically lying about themselves. Right. Um, Emma's career... That was a more selfish choice. Um, <laughs> when I wrote Ghosted, um, the natural world, you know, Ghosted is set in this very beautiful valley in the Cotswolds in the UK. And it's where I grew up. And um, the natural world, that valley sort of became like a third character in the novel. It started to inform plot and character in a way that I, you know, I've never experienced before. And I felt very, very keenly that I wanted that to be part of this next novel, even though the plot was completely different. And so I thought I was thinking about Emma at the very, very beginning and thinking, firstly, what is her secret? You know, I right. know I about this novel that she's got a big secret. I have no <laughs> idea what it is. Um, and all I knew was that um, I wanted her to be alone with this secret under a big sky with the tide rolling in and out. And that was just the image that I had. And so I thought, great, she's going to be some sort of a naturalist. And because there was the sea present in this vision that I had, I thought, oh, OK, she can be a, mar a marine biologist. Absolutely. Did not realise that there's about a hundred different types of marine <laughs> So I had to talk to quite a lot of people until I settled on um, what she does do, which is intertidal ecology. Yes, she's finding her crab, which... Finding her crab. What a fun thing to say. <laughs> what was the research like to talk to so many different types? I'm assuming you've probably talked to quite a few scientists, marine biologists. It's knowing how you research just location alone, what was that like to research career? Heavy. <laughs> Very heavy. Not, I'm not <laughs> one for the, the sciences. <laughs> yeah, it went on. Yeah, no, it was not heavy for the scientists. It was, it was heavy for me. I mean, there's a line towards the beginning of the book where Leo says that being trapped in a dinner party with a bunch of scientists, uh, biologists, it's stuff of nightmares. You just can't understand what they're saying. I mean, they, they really tried, uh, but every time I had a conversation with any of them, and there were a lot of them that I was speaking to, sure. um, I would have to say, I'm really sorry. <laughs> Could I ask you to stop and just make that a little bit more simple, you know, layman's terms. And, and actually what I came to realise in the end was that they, there are no layman's terms in mm. science. You know, they, <laughs> they don't exist for good reason. <laughs> you know, these people have spent years and years and years and years in academic institutions. Right you know, polishing their craft. So I did the best I could. You know, I would go home from the Marine Biological Association in Plymouth in the UK, just with armfuls of academic journals. I knew I've never understood and understand. But if I was able to just pull out even a few species names or just sort of see a repeated theme or a word that I hadn't previously understood, it was still worth it. Um, Definitely so landed. Like, sorry. I was going to say it definitely lended authenticity, that, that act of... It, just taking the bits and pieces you could. Well, that's 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 good to know because I realised quite soon in, in into my research that you know I couldn't just wing it with science. You know, you right. actually really need to. Even if you're writing on the very, you know, skating the very surface, which is all I've done, you mm. still need to. You still need to have that stuff watertight. And Absolutely. so I did. I did eventually send it once the book was finished. I sent drafts of it to marine biologists to read which they oh, wow. very kindly did I tried to pay them they refused um 
but yeah they very kindly read it for me word for word and said it's just those little things you know like I used to work in telly and mm-hmm. I when I when I read books about people you know about people in telly written by people who aren't in telly they've got the information right normally but it's just it's turns of phrase isn't it it's just the way we yes. organize words or the ways we would abbreviate things mm-hmm. it's just it's it's never quite it never quite lands so I was determined to make sure that I didn't say anything that a marine biologist wouldn't wouldn't say absolutely now as not a science person and not a marine biologist it convinced me uh but knowing that you came from a background in television is that what inspired you to connect emma into the world of tv with her her kind of stint in her show that is a really good question and the answer is really shameful um the (laughs) (laughs) truth the truth is when i was pregnant with my first child i felt awful and my partner um, was off to Scotland for a week, maybe 10 days to do some work for BBC Scotland because he's a filmmaker. And um, he just said, look, you're having such a horrible time. Would you like to come with me? You know, would a change of scene help? You could just come and stay in my hotel, like just wander around. Um, uh-huh. So I stayed in Glasgow and I was sitting in the canteen at the BBC and I met up with an old friend and I just suddenly thought, I need to make this trip an ex- tax expensable trip. <laughs> <laughs> so I got out my notebook then and there and started taking note, you know, doing the stuff that I was talking about earlier, you yes. know, making those notes about the BBC canteen. And, you know, actually the scene where Emma, where, sorry, where Leo is sitting in the BBC canteen is really vivid. And that's because I was sitting because there. Because you were there. <laughs> yeah, I need to use this trip as an expense. I can't just come here and sit around. I've got, to, it's got to be a work thing. Um, so that's, I'm afraid that's how that came to pass. But I knew, you know, once I was beginning to get to grips with the story, I knew that actually that was a really great vehicle for sort yes. of helping expose bits of Emma's past that didn't add up. I, I love that as an ant. That is my favorite kind of answer. Well, I wanted to expense it and uh, I did, <laughs> but it, it does, but it true. does lend itself. <laughs> Terrible, Terrible but true, true is my favorite. <laughs> So you had your second child amidst the pandemic and while writing this book? Yeah, that, that was not a fun time. No, I, I can't imagine it was. Did that shape your experience? In, in The Love of My Life, you have quite a few unique takes on motherhood. Was being pregnant uh, while writing and during a pandemic, did that influence those elements? Or was there a connection you found with with being pregnant, having your child, and also writing this story about a, a very unlikely mother, did those tie together at all? Um, I really love the way you put that because I, I do feel like an unlikely mother and, <laughs> and I've never heard that phrase before and it describes me perfectly. And, and I've, you know, my journey as a mother has been very challenging because I do feel like an unlikely mother and and I guess that's Emma's experience too, although for entirely different reasons. Sure. Um, I mean, Emma's experience of motherhood, as anyone who reads the book will discover, is pretty intense and unusual. Absolutely. And it's not, it's not my experience. So whilst I, you know, it wasn't a directly relatable thing, um, for me, being pregnant a second time and feeling physically awful, which I did, but this time around having a two-year-old to look after and 
Um, And then the arrival of the pandemic and the growing realization that I wasn't going to be able to finish my book before I had a baby, which is not comfortable because, you know, once you've had a baby, you just want to hunker down and really not have write anything anything. yeah the combination of all of those things happening at the same time and just and if I'm honest the sheer hell of of having you know a small child in lockdown with nurseries closed which is what it was like you know at the beginning um all of those things converged on me at once and I, I had a bit of a breakdown really um emotionally I was in an incredibly dark place I was very anxious I I just couldn't cope and in the end, I just had to stop writing altogether. And when I started writing again, I was still really not not well mentally, I don't think. Um, sure. I, I was really depressed and really anxious, you know, postnatally by that point. And so although, you know, Emma's experience is um, in no way echoing my own, I think just the darkness that I had in me at that time helped um, inform my writing and helped really bring out the sheer tragedy of Emma's past. Absolutely. Um, in a way that potentially wouldn't have been so easy or intuitive had I not been going through that myself. I I can only imagine. I, I applaud you for being able to to pull through at, through the end of it. Uh, going through all of that sounds, uh, like I said, I, I could never begin to imagine, but it, it definitely helped shape the story in what feels like a really emotionally powerful way that so many moments I found myself just gripping my chest as I was as I was coming toward the end of my pages oh well I've done my job well thank you (laughs) it's lovely feedback and good to know because of course it's only been out a week so I've not heard from many readers yet so this is this is good (laughs) well I'm I'm glad to be one of the uh the early ones (laughs) now uh what encouraged you or what inspired you to combine genres you know not only are we looking at quite a few topics here with guilt and identity memory and mental health uh you're also and and motherhood of course you're also looking at a love story because no matter what page you're on you can tell that emma and leo love each other like that is always apparent um but then you also have an emotional thrill ride happening at the same time what what a what inspired that um, I think, you know, when I read, when I wrote Ghosted, um, mm-hmm. that sort of coming, that confluence of genres happened naturally. Um, at the time I was writing a sort of commercial romantic-ish fiction under a pseudonym. And, you know, my intention was very much to to write that novel under that pseudonym and to continue as I was, you know, aim, aiming at, a, you know, a different market. Mm-hmm. And that novel took on a life of its own because, you know, of course it started with the premise of a man who didn't call and <laughs> right. it, it, it became, you know, this, um, this sort of mishmash of, of genres, which a friend of mine recently uh, called an emotional thriller. And I think that's absolutely perfect. It is an emotional thriller. Um, and so when I'd finished that and when I began to hear from readers and, and, and editors and all sorts of you know uh, journalists and reviews and all sorts of people around the world I was really struck by how much people had enjoyed that combination mm-hmm. um, and so it wasn't you know a cynical you know oh I've got to recreate that and hope that I have another success again kind of a move right. 
but it was more just a recognition of the fact that actually people really really like that combination of elements because they're both so relatable you know mm -hmm. it's you know a thriller I guess you know you wake up and your husband's dead on the bathroom floor <laughs> whereas in you know what, what I'm interested in is waking up to find out that your husband's told you a little lie um, that actually could mean something so much more um, and so that sort of seems to have become my sweet spot and I'm very happy there and my idea for my next novel I think lies in this you know this strange mishmash confluence of, of genres and it's, it's tricky it's nerve-wracking as a writer because sure. you know a publisher cannot handle that that combination of things if they jacket your book badly mm -hmm. you're gonna sink without trace so it's it's a big responsibility but I think my publishers have more than risen to the challenge Oh, without a doubt. It's every time the book would pop up before it's released. And I was like, yep, I will be, I will be waiting on that. It's, it's packaged beautifully. The cover is enticing. Uh, every kind of descriptor really, really sells the idea that it's just a little more than you're expecting. Oh, it's gorgeous, isn't it? I, it is. I cannot stop looking at that. I cannot stop stroking that book. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, I think. I don't doubt that. <laughs> So I want to give us some lighter notes to wrap up on, just wrap up on the high points. Um, I like to ask all of my author guests what they're currently reading or what they're currently binging, Sorry, or both if you've got it. If Siri doesn't interrupt me. <laughs> Mine does that. Was that your Apple Watch? Yeah, it was my watch. <laughs> yeah, it does that when I bend my arm. It'll just suddenly say, I'm sorry. I don't know. What? Shut up. <laughs> what did you need? <laughs> Clearly that was not a question. Right, just some peace and quiet. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, what am I reading at the moment? What are you reading at the moment? Oh, well, I mean, the, one, of the, one of the benefits and drawbacks of um, unexpected um, book success is that suddenly mm -hmm. everyone wants you to review their book. And so <laughs> my, oh my gosh, my bedroom is so stressful at the moment. There are piles and piles of unread books there for review. And every time I go into my bedroom, I feel really anxious and I feel like I'm letting down millions of authors you know especially the ones that I know the ones that helped me out when I was starting out right um, but you can you know I've got two young children I work pretty much full-time you know I've got a lot going on so I can't read that much um <laughs> so at the moment you know if a book isn't gripping me from the from literally from the first chapter I'm afraid it's gone absolutely um but yeah the book I'm reading at the moment is a book that loads of your uh, listeners will have read which is um the last thing he told me by Laura Dave, because we're doing an event together on Saturday, which I cannot wait for. And, you know, I, I know I don't need to have read her book, but I, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that it I'm helps. reading. Because good Lord, I cannot put that thing down. Right. It, it, oh. You're right. Most of our listeners have absolutely read it. It is a, it's a great book. <laughs> what a scorcher. No blooming wonder she's been in the top 10 for nearly a year. <laughs> I, well, I, well you know, deserved. I, I, I fully support that. It, it would be very easy to be jealous of an author who's sat there for nearly a year, but she, good Lord, she deserves that. Without a doubt. Yeah. And are you, um, I know time is precious, but are you binge watching anything right now or watching anything good on TV? Oh, I wish I was binge watching something. <laughs> I have no time to watch TV and it kills me when, I, when people are having conversations about box sets. I'm just, oh God, <laughs> when will my feel? When, when is my life going to change just a little to allow some time for box sets? However, once the month of March is over and I finish doing all of the sort of the main promotional stuff for this, this book publication, I'm basically on the three days a week where I have a bit of childcare plus school, I'm going to just lie on the sofa, maybe go for the odd walk or the odd swim, but I'm basically sure. going to lie on the sofa, snack. 
and watch a lot of Netflix. So if you've got any, you know, if you've got any recs, I'll take them. (laughs) That sounds like the perfect plan to me. And uh, this is also a great segue to give us your social media in case our listeners have recommendations for you. Or of course, anything you'd like to promote at the moment, where can our people find you? Yeah, so they can find me on uh, Instagram and Twitter at the Rosie Walsh. Don't ask. I, I don't. I can't even remember why that became my handle, and I apologise for it. <laughs> and on Facebook, I am Rosie Walsh author. Perfect. Um, any final things you'd like to add about the love of my life, or anything you've got going on right now? Yeah, I'm, well, actually, I have got something going on right now, which was a very, very late phone call last night to tell me that it had charted in the top 10 in the New York Times bestseller list. Well, congratulations. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sort of two hours into an epic eight hour radio and podcast interview uh, <laughs> booking, but I am just absolutely full of joy inside. I'm dancing inside. I cannot, cannot believe it. It's so you exciting. Your mother's dreams to be on that list twice. I. I did not, I just, there was not a part of me that expected it to happen again. And here I am. Oh, well, from my opinion alone, it is super well-deserved and <laughs> I cannot wait for more people to pick this up. Um, the Love of My Life became available March 1st. And of course you can buy it wherever you get your books or check it out for free from your library through Libby. Rosie, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been great to chat. Thank you all so much for listening today. Remember, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. You could visit our website, professionalbooknerds.com. Or of course, if you want to email us, you can send that email to professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Thank you all so much for joining us today and happy reading. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.